The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman and Marilyn Stern on MEF Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk in the Morning. We have had a not exciting, not a scintillating, not a fun last few weeks since our last broadcast. We have been having a harrowing, a frightful, a concerning series of events which have caused, dare I say, the globe to be on the verge of pandemic. The nation of the United States and its allied nations in Europe and even its greatest foes in China and Iran are all dealing with a virus that does not discriminate between people, color, nation states, borders, political views or opinions. And yes, we are talking about COVID-19 the coronavirus. But I would be remiss to tell you that on this program today, unlike all the other soothsayers around the rest of the world and commentary and talk radio, we won't just be trying to approach what you can do to handle the virus or its effects on the Middle East, but we will be bringing to you in the bottom half of the hour an individual whose company has been working on vaccines for all different types of coronaviruses, I guess, Marilyn, the proper term is coronaviri. If that's, uh, I'm sure Daniel's going to... Viruses. Viruses. I'm sure Daniel's going to comment on my new, uh, again, inventing words in the English language. But in all seriousness, we will be bringing to you an individual who is redeveloping an already extent coronavirus vaccine, which is used in poultry... And in livestock, because what we have to understand about the origins of this virus, and we're going to get this into, into the conversation with him later on today, is that the coronavirus jumped from a animal in a market in China, in Wuhan, China. There's some stories about an individual eating a bat. There's some people talking about owls, other about live meat, with whatever kind of animal it was. Doesn't matter. But... There's already agrarian researchers and agricultural veterinarians, those who specifically deal with livestock and farm animals, that have been trying to develop a vaccine for poultry for the past 15 years. And they've gotten very, very close to being able to implement that vaccine amongst all different kinds of fowl. And in doing so, it's just replacing a few parts of the genome and then leading it out to FDA and accelerated human trials that this individual, Itai Block, and his company, Progeny Agchem and Miguel Galil Research Institute, that may be the saving grace for humanity's latest pandemic problem. But we'll be beginning the show with Katerina Suku, the visiting scholar at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and Washington, D.C.'s correspondent for the Kathamarini Greek Daily Newspaper, the largest read daily sheet in Athens and the rest of the country. But a few minutes of commentary before we get to the program. Our intrepid researcher in Washington, D.C., Michael Levinson, puts together the best summaries of Middle East news and analyses. Every day it comes in fresh to our mailbox with all of our staff members at MEF, 
at around 4.35 p.m. And I really look forward to reading it every day because I know what I'll have to be looking to the next day in terms of the topics that I'll be expected to cover in our work. Now, Micah has been covering the after effects of the Israeli elections. We've spoken about this, Marilyn, ad nauseum. I mean, we've had three opportunities to be able to have three different news cycles to discuss this. I don't mean just 24-hour news cycles. We've had three different elections on which we've been able to have the opportunity to comment. But Micah brings to us news yesterday on how other Middle Eastern countries are dealing with the coronavirus. And and I want to focus on Israel, not in terms of the elections, but actually how it may help form unity in the wake of all this political peril in the country. I mean, they're still arguing over who's going to be the prime minister, but they have a consensus on the setting up of the need for uh, the need for setting up a coronavirus committee in the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli parliament. So we know that every single European Union nation now, Cyprus was the last one, has been uh, in a place to find evidence of the coronavirus affecting at least one of their citizens or residents of their countries. So the entire EU now does not have one nation left that has no coronavirus. The same is true in the Middle East. From Morocco all the way to Iran, we see that the countries which have the best public health systems are those that have been able to manage it the best. Iran has thousands of cases now. It's probably the second worst area outside of China. Italy's been pretty bad, but Italy has a first-rate medical system. Italy's been able to take the measures of quarantining and shutting down the entire country and able to deal with this. But Iran and its ministers and its members of parliament, the Majils, for the last three or four weeks prior to them actually implementing a nationwide quarantine or a nationwide shutdown on many different things like not having rallies anymore in the middle of Tehran and the uh, the capital of Iran, uh, their willingness to shut down Friday daily prayers, which is uh, something that has been of particularly um, uh, of, of note. And... Um, their willingness to even exclude ministers and government officials from the daily course of activities. I mean, we've had a first vice president in Iran diagnosed with corona. We've had one of the individuals responsible for the U.S. embassy hostage taking back in 1979 who died from the virus. We have a second member of parliament who's died from the virus. We have a deputy health minister who has died from the virus. Iran has been stricken, and it's actually apparent that it's affecting all of those at the top as much as it's affecting those at the bottom. And that's what happens when you have countries that invest more in their overseas terrorism activities rather than their internal public health systems. The country was not ready for an outbreak or a contagion like is happening now. And my fear, and Marilyn, this is the thing that we've found, which has been quite fascinating, scary yet fascinating. Most of the cases in the Gulf countries where we have seen corona pop up, has come from Iranian expats on their way to a pilgrimage in Iraq, going to see some of the Shia holy sites there, doing business in the United Arab Emirates. We have 41 different Iranians who are quarantined just in the UAE. There was two cases. There was one which an Italian biking uh, cycling team went to the UAE Cup, whatever the cycling competition there was. But most of the other guys came to Kush, which was the, this overseas some sort of semi-autonomous island, free trade zone that the Iranians have, Kish Island. And they brought with them the virus. We also have the unprecedented shutting down of Mecca and Medina. The Hajj is off 
right now, as far as the Saudis are concerned. They've put public health above one of the top five pillars of Islam. I mean, the nation state of Israel has shut its borders, effectively demanding anyone who arrives in the country, whether they're a citizen or resident, must impose upon themselves a 14-day quarantine the second that they arrive in order Israel's borders. If they don't have a place to stay that they can certify and randomly inspect for 14 days, they turn them back. This is on the verge of draconian measures. And, and not just to mention that. At the same time, the Saudis decided to short the oil economy. I mean, they flooded the market with millions of more barrels per day, thereby causing the Russians and the Iranians and even the American energy industry to radically shift their prices and also de-escalate and charge down their prices. So now we have this glut of oil supply, something like we haven't had in over 30 years. And as a result of all of this, we find ourselves now on the verge of global economic disaster and collapse, but maybe people and policymakers in Washington and Europe and even in China are starting to get their heads around all of this. Moving away from Corona and COVID-19, we're going to take a break right now, and afterwards we'll be joined by Katerina Soku. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. I'm Greg Roman, your host with Marilyn Stern, our producer, and Gary Gamble, feeding us questions from his virtual studio abroad. But now we have our first guest this morning, and we're joined by Katerina Soku. And Katerina, you're going to fix me in my pronunciation on that as soon as I get through your bio. She is a visiting scholar at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and the Washington, D.C. correspondent for Kath Marini. Greek Daily Broadsheet, the biggest and largest broad, uh, newspaper in Greece, and Sky TV. She's also the principal of news intelligence and a member of the Advisory Board of European Affairs, the online journal of the D.C.-based European Institute. 
She reports on transatlantic relations, U.S. politics, and international economics. Katerina, welcome to the program. Thank you for hosting me, Greg. So tell us, before we get into any of this um, Turkey and, and Greece uh, kerfuffle over the reneging on the border agreement signed with Greece and the EU back in 2016, uh, how is the COVID-19 coronavirus affecting Greece? Well, we also had uh, uh, back home a, um, a two-week uh, cancellation of classes for our schools and universities. So I think Italy being so close, I think the region, the, the nations in the region realize that they have to take more draconian measures, as you were saying earlier, uh, to make sure that it, the, the virus doesn't spread uh, as widely and as easily as, as it has in Italy, literally shutting down the economy. Uh, so I think we're seeing uh, a much more aggressive approach from the countries in the region, uh, and uh, that includes Israel, of course. And I think that um, there is a well-founded fear that many of the individuals who are fleeing from Middle Eastern nations and using Greece as a transit point, I mean, this isn't just a refugee issue anymore. This is a public health issue. Now, I don't want to be accused of, um, you know, uh, bias towards individuals who are refugees who may be carriers of the virus. Look, anybody has it. But the fact of the matter is, is that someone who doesn't have access to top-rate health care or public health poses a greater problem than an individual who's within an, uh, an ecosystem that they can go to the doctor among the first signs of having symptoms of whatever virus, not just COVID-19 or corona. Um, is there any instances of refugees entering Greece who have been diagnosed with the disease? Well, one of the issues with the current situation at the border between Greece and Turkey is the, uh, the violent uh, way that the migrants and refugees are trying to enter, uh, uh, walk through the border. Uh, basically, they're trying to break in. Uh, and uh, this is not a situation where you can actually, uh, and they're trying to escape, evade the authorities in order to do so. So there is no way uh, and we're talking about controlling our borders here, right? And uh, what Israel has been doing, for example, in order to make sure that, uh, you know, it guarantees people if they enter the country. And, and here, there is just no way if someone is uh, trying to evade authorities and just uh, walk in another country without going through the normal process, you, you don't have a way to see whether uh, they may be positive or not. So one, it's certainly a public health concern as well as a security concern, given the situation worldwide uh, right now. Uh, I, I have to say, there, I mean, we, I'm also um, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and we just had uh, a, a big uh, report out with different analyst views on how we see uh, the situation evolving in Idlib and how that relates to what Europe should be doing about the situation. And uh, I'm making an, an argument that Europe can no longer avoid uh, to uh, see the situation in Idlib and uh, try to, uh, to to deal with it because the refugee pressures and the migration pressures coming from Turkey, and we can talk about how Turkey is instrumentalizing it in order to blackmail Europe. But even without Turkey in the mix, we do have to see the situation and try to resolve the situation on the ground so that so that we don't have the, all these effects of uh, a continuing crisis, and it is also a humanitarian crisis in Syria. So, so you just you just offered us a lot to deconstruct here. Let's move piece by mm -hmm. piece, and then try to extrapolate the key points for our audience. So, 
we started with public health, but the reason I wanted to offer that as our appetizer for the conversation is because the transnational migration and refugee issues, which have been, I think, plaguing Greece since the onset of the Syrian civil war in February of 2011. And also, we can't forget the similar situation in the Sahel and in North Africa, which has been present, especially with Libyan migrants affecting Italy, and also to a certain extent even Greece's southern borders with those who are coming from Egypt. It's a much longer trek, but still it takes place. It's not because of individuals necessarily trying to seek a better way of life. Excuse me, not because they're, they're avoiding conflict, but because they're economic migrants. They're not just individuals who are fleeing from uh, conflict or, or civil war and strife within their own countries. So you have here now the first real issue, the first real clear and present danger that these individuals are bringing, which is unchecked, unfettered immigration, and Greece has decided to clamp down. So I've seen the pictures and the video that some, um, I don't want to call them pro-transitory organizations, but pro-migration organizations, pro-refugee organizations have taken. There was one of a Greek Coast Guard um, official on a boat trying to stop a, uh, a dinghy getting into Greek waters off the island of Lesbos. There was another which took place, I believe, of a, um, a group of 200 individuals who had landed on shore and then individuals on that same island of Lesbos who were Greek natives were trying to literally beat them back into the sea. Now, those are extreme cases, but we have to argue that just like you said right now, the instance of having a conflict stop in its point of origin is vital to prevent those scenes from taking place a few weeks later after those who are fleeing that conflict get to the shores of another country. So three questions here. I'll ask you them in, in uh, succession. Number one, are European countries starting to wake up to the plight that Greece faces and are backing them in their um, standoff with Turkey? I mean, do we have Germany now saying Greece has a right to deny these people entry into the European Union? Well, uh, I will... I, I will start by saying that you're right, uh, the Greek authorities from all the non-documented cases of refugees uh, that uh, are coming into the country or migrants, uh, virtually all arrests made by the Greek authorities uh, are of other nationalities, not Syrians, Afghanis, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Iraqis, Somalis, uh, people from Northern Africa. So so you see that, uh, and most of them actually also speak Turkish, meaning that they have been in Turkey for a few years before reaching the border. So these are not people fleeing Idlib. Um, They're not political so refugees. Well, let's, let's say that. Yes. Now, on the question of whether a country has the right to protect its border, yes, thankfully, uh, both the European Union and, of course, the United States has supported publicly Greece in its right to protect its border. It's a sovereign right. And uh, the Europeans have also been mentioning and stressing uh, for the first time so clearly that this is the European border as well. And we see, for example, Austrian uh, soldiers joining the Greek soldiers in, in patrolling the border. They just arrived yesterday. Uh, so there is uh, much more solidarity and rather an understanding, I would say, from Europe that uh, both that this is a European problem and secondly, that this is a, um, a sovereignty issue, right? Uh, we, we need, I mean, this has been going on for the last uh, almost five, six years. 
right? And if you see pictures from how the situation has evolved, for example, in the Greek islands, and how the local population has treated refugees and migrants, and how they welcomed them at first, uh, right? But after five years without a, a sustainable solution to the problem, and we can talk about the European uh, responsibility here as well, uh, the, having more people coming from Turkey used by Turkey and sent by Turkey uh, in a way for, for purposes of blackmailing Europe, political purposes, destabilization purposes, we can talk about that as well. Uh, but it's just too much for them uh, at this point. So solutions need to be made. It, it, things have to be reconsidered. And I think this is exactly what the Europeans are doing at this point. While also stressing, right? I mean, the situation needs to be dealt in a way that respects human rights. And that's all, always um, a, a European consideration and obviously a Greek consideration as well. Uh, but in a, in a situation where you have uh, a violent uh, effort to, to cross into Greece by people who are uh, rioting and actually get into direct conflict with the Greek authorities, this is no way to seek asylum, is it? I think we can all agree on that. Right, but I mean, you've made a very prescient point here. Actually, my um, co-producer here, Gary Gamble, and I, we wrote an article about five years ago for The Hill, which categorized Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, the then Prime Minister, now President of Turkey's usage of human migrants, almost as a human wave attack. It's now a new weapon in his quiver that he can use against Europe to pressure them. And then we have to give a little bit of history first about what happened with the EU-Turkey deal prior to Erdogan reneging on it a few weeks ago. There was something like 3 billion to 4 billion euros in payments that Europe agreed to provide to Erdogan to help assist taking care of these economic refugees, not Syrian refugees, economic refugees that were present in his country. Now, there were a few million Syrians who were there too, but like you just made the point of, they're not the ones who are trying to flee into Europe right now. It's more individuals who are seeking economic benefit or being able to take care of the European economic zone. But when Erdogan pulls back on this agreement, he says, I can't control the flow of humans going through my borders. It's a human right to be able to be transitory. And he unleashes this new human wave assault against Greece. I mean, I'm not trying to say that I uh, agree with what almost Greek vigilantes have been doing in reacting to these individuals showing up on their shores. But it's as much as the president of Turkey's fault that they're facing this situation as it is for the, the rank disgust and rancor, which is emanating from Greek citizens who, again, for the umpteenth time in the last nine years, have to see millions of individuals transiting through their territory and in some cases end up staying there and upsetting the cultural balance of the country. It's not Greece anymore. It's like as if though they're trying to take Thessaloniki again or Athens. And I just think that's unacceptable. And I think that not just draconian measures being applied to public health situations, but draconian measures being dealt with in terms of migration have to be adopted. And more than that, the answer isn't just in Brussels or in Athens. The answer lies in Ankara. And something has to be done to help to, to, to hold the Turkish government to account. What policy options does the EU and Greece have vis-a-vis -vis Turkey to try to encourage them to stop the uh, spigot of human migration? 
that's a great question. I think this is go this goes to the heart of, of the issue here. And uh, I, I have to say that uh, we've seen in the past um, in the past uh, few weeks uh, the way that Erdogan has instrumentalized has has used. Uh, the migrants and refugees to blackmail Europe. And in Greece, we see that the way that this has been encouraged, this uh, misinformation that the borders were open to begin with, uh, and then the direction of the government that, uh, to the migrants and refugees that they can flee, and then uh, the facilitation that they provide with free buses to go to the border. Uh, we, we've heard reports of people not being able to go back. They keep them there as, uh, as an instrument basically next to the border, the Greek border, right, uh, in really bad conditions. So the cynicism of uh, President Erdogan and, and his policy on this matter has re is really the one that has, if you will, broken the, the camel's back in Europe on how um, they will be treated, they have been responding to this uh, crisis and to Erdogan on this issue. So. Uh, on, on the European side, there the is an understanding uh, that uh, this, the, this deal, this statement of 2016, it needs to hold. Right now, Greece, uh, the European Union doesn't have a common asylum policy. Uh, the, the statement of 2016 provided less than perfect, for sure, a problematic uh, agreement of sorts to manage the situation of uh, the flow of refugees and migrants to Europe. And this needs to be reviewed, this needs to be strengthened. Uh, Turkey needs to keep its part of the agreement, and uh, Europe and the world needs to provide help uh, used for keeping the refugees and, and migrants in Turkey, right? So uh, I think that will be the terms under which we review the agreement. I know that Greece uh, wants greater protection at its border, for example, uh, they're lobbying for uh, Frontex to patrol not just the Greek side of the border, but also uh, the, uh, of the of the sea border, but also the Turkish one, so that we don't have a situation where boats come to Greece and then you can't turn them away. Why not stop them at Turkey before they even start? So this is one of the arguments made by the Greek government that will be made going forward. At the same time, for example, we have a, a humanitarian case of 5,000 uh, unaccompanied children, refugee children in Greece, that Greece has pleaded with uh, the rest of the European Union to share, right, to, 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 to actually make sure that they share the burden among the European countries, anyone who can provide support for these children. and. Uh, until now, the Europeans were refusing. Now, finally, some countries have come forward and uh, offered to share the burden and take some of these children. Uh, you know, we're talking about radicalization and uh, Islamic, Islamic radicalization. If you don't provide for these unaccompanied children, how, who are you going to provide for? So uh, there, there are cases for showing uh, our humanitarian side. There are also cases for showing our solidarity with uh, with the border states and our conviction that this is our borders and we need to keep them safe for the sake of our populations. So I think that we're trying to do both at this moment, and uh, hopefully the agreement that we will, uh, we 
with the new agreement that we will have with Turkey will be along those lines. Looking at uh, potentially the opposite side of this, let's say relations between Greece and Turkey go south. There's been three or four times over the past few decades that the two countries have been on the precipice of war. Could this involve military action? Actually, uh, that's uh, one of my major concerns, I would say, uh, because, uh, you know, what can go wrong if you have two armies on the border uh, pointing at each other and, uh, uh, you know, on high alert for weeks without end? And I'm talking about the Everest border here. So we've had uh, just yesterday, for example, uh, we've had cases of uh, uh, both um, uh, soldiers from Turkey uh, firing at Greek border guards uh, just last night. And we've had the case of, uh, uh, on the sea as well, uh, of uh, a Turkish uh, ship. Uh, actually, there is a video that showed a vessel of the Greek Coast Guard being hit by a Turkish Coast Guard boat uh, of the uh, Greek island, of course. And just today, uh, I think the uh, ambassador of Turkey to Greece was summoned to provide an explanation. Uh, but I understand that also that President Erdogan referred to the incident saying that uh, um, they will run away, the Greeks, and we will chase them, and that's how it will be from now on. So obviously there is evidence of a sharp increase uh, in aggressive behavior on the border. And uh, I think it was also the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the State Department, uh, uh, Palmer, who visiting uh, the region actually says that uh, the situation, the it's fundamentally destabilizing and, you know, having uh, refugees and migrants among the mix and uh, um, actually misleading them oh. to uh, believe that the road to Europe is open is actually uh, adding to the confusion on the border that should be uh, really, you know, like uh, well maintained. Oh, Katerina, I'm, I'm sorry, we um, we're run out of time now, but I want to thank you for all of the insight that you've provided on this very important issue. And, and I got to tell you, we are uh, on the side of the Greek government and the Greek people here because the use of human migrants as a weapon is deplorable and Erdogan should be held to account. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Katerina Soku, the columnist, the Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Katharina Daily Newspaper, and also a visiting scholar at the Elliott School of International Affairs and the Atlantic Council. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Greg. After these messages, Itai Block. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. 
and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Millie's Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. And I have been following these stories in the Israeli press for the past few weeks, ever since this coronavirus, COVID-19, has really taken on global proportions. And the name that I keep on seeing repeated in article after article is the Miguel Galilee Research Institute with its co-founder, or not its co-founder per se, but one of its researchers, Mr. or Dr. Itai Bloch, a graduate of Israel's Weizmann Institute of Science in the field of computational chemistry, drug discovery, and cheminformatics. Mr. Bloch and the Galilee Research Institute have been working in the forefront of trying to find a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus, which is a subset of the coronavirus, and he's going to explain to us exactly what that means. Dr. Block, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. So where are you joining us from right now? Um, I'm actually at my office at the moment. And you're in the, uh, you're in the Galil? Uh, yeah, in, in the Galil region, in the Miguel Research Institute. And it's in uh, Kiryat Shmoni, right? Yeah, right. So you have coronavirus on one hand and Hezbollah on the other. You really are in a uh, in a pretty pretty picky precarious situation up there. Yeah, coronavirus is everywhere, <laughs> but we are in a special situation. Yeah. So tell me, what is the uh, history of the institute and its dealing with different types of coronavirus and and why that's important in fighting COVID nineteen? Okay, so the uh, Miguel uh, Research Institute is, um, I think, is 40... I joined Miguel approximately seven years ago. Uh, opened a new research lab, research group here, uh, focusing on computational drug discovery and chemoinformatics. But the research institute itself exists for almost 40 years. Um, it covers a wide range of scientific fields from uh, environmental science, plant science, agriculture, and biotechnology. Uh, specifically in this project uh, we were involved was a project that we initiated four years ago, and it was aimed to uh, develop new technologies and vaccines for avian diseases in order to support the poultry uh, industry. So this this would worldwide. be this this would be let's say if you had a case of bird flu or if you had some other sort of disease right. which is affecting chickens or fowl or ducks or whatever else you come in there you exactly. evaluate the source the genomics of what's going on and you say all right this is the vaccine that's appropriate for this type of virus but the logic is that if it's the same strand strain not strain but same family of viruses that affect a chicken and then it makes it jump into a human you could then hypothetically, reverse engineer the um, vaccine you used for the chicken and then apply it to a human being. Yes, this is correct. So uh, we are dealing with uh, um, organisms, viruses, that are capable of uh, uh, changes in their genome and actually change rapidly uh, over the time. And it is a common feature of viruses all over. Uh, affecting all uh, organisms and hosts. 
and therefore we are developing a technology that is generic enough to be updated each time we see a new strain. For example, if you take the seasonal flu, you take every year, there's a recommendation of the World Health Organization uh, to update the, the vaccine that uh, people are uh, taking. And the reason for that is the uh, rapid uh, evolution, the rapid change uh, in the viruses, uh, which has to be adjusted to the current circulating strains, uh, to the current outbreak, basically. Um, from our perspective, the scientific, the basic research uh, perspective, it is the same um, procedure that we are doing each time we update the vaccine, but this time we do a, a little bit larger uh, jump or a leap uh, in order to update it to a virus which is affecting other organisms. So we took uh, a vaccine solution, a technology that we developed for an avian coronavirus, and we are now updating it to be able to protect against the human coronavirus, the COVID-19. So a lot many media reports have said that it's going to take up to 18 months for this to be mass deployed to uh, you know, uh, doctors around the globe. But we have um, a statement from the Minister of Science in Israel, Ophir Kunis, who says in an article the other day, actually not the other day, it's two weeks ago, February 27th, Congratulations to Miguel on this exciting breakthrough. I am confident there will be further rapid progress enabling us to provide a needed response to the grave global COVID-19 threat. And he's basically saying that it might be ready within 90 days. Is that a correct assessment? Um, so we are not talking about from our side. Again, we are a research institute and we, do, we are not the health regulate, regulators and we cannot do here the clinical trials. So what we, I think, was uh, uh, the, what he was trying to say, basically, is that we are going to finish all the adaptation, all the uh, adjustment needed to be able to produce, from that moment on, the human version of our vaccines. And from that moment on, it is basically a question for the health uh, authorities to decide what would be the regulation, what would be the demands, and uh, following that demand, we can uh, come up or set up a clinical trials. We don't want to give people something that haven't been tested for safety, um, and this is where we are going to be in about 90 days. I have to um, to comment that it is a, a really rapid or a very short time for the development of a vaccine, of a new vaccine, and even it is a, a more challenging task because we are talking about new technology. It's not just uh, uh, the same routine that we follow each year, for example, for the flu vaccine. It's a totally new one, and we want to test it. We want to be very careful and on the safe side, but on... Uh, the same time trying to uh, to give some answer to this outbreak to the very important issue so what exactly happens you're going to take mice and you're going to test them and you're going to move up to to baboons and then you'll test them and then all of a sudden you'll say all right we've done our animal trials now we're ready for human trials government of israel or uh, ministry of health or uh, fda do we have your permission to go ahead and do this they'll say okay yes go ahead do it and then how long will it go from when you submit to the government? Or, or I, I know there's a typical answer. It's usually 18 months yeah. from, you know, a, a controlled and, and, and then the variable testing is a certain amount of time. In your estimate, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. What's the shortest yeah. period of time so, that the government regulators will allow for there to be a trial and then deployment if it works? So in general, what you outlined is correct. So the, the regular process would be to test it on rodent, on an animal model, and then a larger animal model, usually some sort of apes. And, uh, and only after that, you go into human, uh, first in human clinical trials. Uh, in most diseases, you have a structured way to do this, a structured uh, path to follow. I think that in this case, since we are facing a new challenge and a new, uh, basically, disease, a new virus, um, there will be some sort of um, effort to try and speed up the entire process. And I believe that even if, uh, if I, first of all, if I uh, regard our vaccine, our solution specifically, it's an orally based uh, vaccine, so you take it by drinking or by, uh, by mouth, and therefore it is supposed to be uh, less um, toxic or less... Uh, it's, it's less severe. invasive, there's less side effects, right? Yeah, less, right. And less, uh, I think, a burden on the um, health, uh, um, on the medical teams in order to administrate it. And we really hope that it will be less than 18 months for the actual approval and to begin treating people. So how do I sign up for the trials? <laughs> Put me number one in the line. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now, we will shortly be probably that phase. Uh, I don't know. Exactly. So uh, we, we won't, we won't okay. speak in, in that uh, language right now. But uh, okay. for all of our listeners, I said I'm also an Israeli citizen. So if you need somebody to try, sign me up. Uh, no, but but in all seriousness, you guys are really doing yeoman's work out there. I want to... I wanna, um, Go to another point for a second, because you're right in the thick of it. I mean, you were doing the research, ground zero, of where we're having the, the effort to fight back on the long-term solution to fighting back against right. COVID-19. But um, now, I'm not assuming you're a public health expert. You're dealing with solutions to viruses uh, and, and uh, chemical informatics. But as an individual whose country is now in a state of effective lockdown, I mean, no flights are coming in, barely any flights are leaving. Right. What's it like to be in a country that is essentially cut off from the rest of the world physically? You're, I'm sure you're talking to your colleagues on the internet over the phone. I mean, you're talking to me on the radio right now. Yeah. But what is it like to be hunkered down in, in, in a bunker mentality? Yeah, so luckily we are in a, an era that we can communicate via internet and other media. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, it has an effect. You can see it already and things are a bit hectic or, you know, a lot of flights and conferences I, I should attend, and I will not get there. Uh, it is difficult to plan ahead in this situation, but I hope it will be, um, first of all, um, the panic will pass. We will see the exact numbers, and we will learn what is the actual risk in this virus. Um, at the moment, despite uh, a relatively large numbers, I don't think we really can say what will and how the situation will evolve, and we still don't know how fast uh, this virus can mutate and change into perhaps even more dangerous or more uh, uh, infectious uh, uh, form. That's, that's the concern, I guess. How big of a threat is the virus in its current form? Sorry, how bad is it? How bad is the threat of the virus in its mm. current form, pre-mutation, if that takes place? Yes, yeah, so I think that um, at the moment, 
um, and and I'm just a you know I, I get the same publications from all around the world. Uh, we are speaking about approximately two point something uh, percent mortality. It's obviously uh, more focused on um, a certain uh, population, certain age age group, and people with a lower immune system. Um, it is um, if you compare it to the seasonal flu, it is uh, much more um, um, severe. And uh, the the other uh, problem with this virus is it is very uh, inf uh, it is infecting in a very high rate. It's very contagious. Relative. Very contagious. Yeah, very contagious. Yeah. Uh, so again, everything is relative to what we are familiar with at the moment. We really hope it will stay that way. Um, but this is the situation, and still the numbers are keep summing up, and you know we get more and more accurate uh, uh, statistics. But at the moment, this, these are the numbers I'm familiar with. When viruses mutate, do mm -hmm. they mutate uh, usually to a more serious strain or a less serious strain, or is there no set rule on that? So there's no rule that uh, basically the process itself of mutation is a random process so it can mutate to uh, a virus which is basically inactive which cannot do anything as well but these forms we will not see them because they will not continue uh, to proliferate or to thrive in in, in humans so uh, we will most likely see the ones that are uh, mutating to um, either a mild sort of a, um, a version of the virus, or a severe one, which is the main concern, obviously. Um, it is difficult to say, but as long as you give the virus to spread, and there is a larger part of population that is uh, infected, um, there is a higher chance to meet even those severe or more severe versions of the virus. And in terms of the um, reactions that governments have been taking in terms of demanding a nationwide quarantine, I mean, we see Italy, we see China, now we see Israel. Is that the right approach, or are they exaggerating? Um, well, I guess it is uh, being cautious in this situation is, uh, is, is not something that you can... Um, I, I think it's a good thing after all. Um, there is a balance, there is a fine balance between the burden on the economic, which obviously all the countries shut down. Uh, it has also risks from other sorts, but uh, at least uh, until we will understand exactly what is the situation we are facing and what is exactly the number of people got infected and how much uh, of them get this uh, uh, the medical uh, condition, the severe medical condition, uh, until that uh, state, I think being cautious is is a good uh, is a good way to go about it. So what what we we've talked about the vaccine and the potential for then to proliferate to make people not just build up the antibodies to us, but to help stem contagion. What's the worst case scenario that can happen if COVID nineteen mm -hmm. goes unchecked and let's say your vaccine doesn't work? I don't want to. You know, give you a nux. I don't want to give you a, uh, yeah. a uh, 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 jinx, but so we, ha we have to. Yeah, we have to. We have to. We have to realize what, what's the worst case scenario here. Okay, so it's again. I'm, I'm a scientist, and I. It is difficult for me to make speculations like that. But what we can see is that we can learn from the past. For example, the introduction of the MERS virus. 
which was also a member of the Corona family. Uh, in this case, it was a much uh, more um, violent version of uh, coronavirus, um, and it, it got uh, it disappeared basically uh, through isolation and through uh, uh, the, the treatment or the measures that the government took. Um, it is difficult to say uh, with this case specifically because of the high rate of infection. And yeah, I think it's uh, it's not a question I'm qualified to answer. No, I, I understood. You guys are focusing on solutions, not on what happens with uh, disaster. I like that. Yeah. I like I like that approach. Um, now, what kind of cooperation is your institute doing with other institutes who are working on a vaccine across the world? Do you have uh, international collaboration? Are you sharing data? What are you doing to help others who are involved in trying to find a vaccine? And how does that work? So obviously, from the moment we got out and with this publication, we got a lot of. Uh, uh, people contacting us, research institutes, and also governments. So we are in contact with several different governments and health authorities around the world, um, with companies who are willing to help. Some of them are offering their services uh, and uh, knowledge uh, in order to assist us. And obviously, we will need at some time, at some point, uh, the, the proper funding and facility in order to uh, to test our vaccines. Uh, in clinical trials and in humans. So um, I think we have a lot of uh, people coming, or a lot of contacts uh, coming in, um, and we are trying to answer everyone <laughs> and, to, uh, and to see how and which one of them can really be of the greatest help uh, in order to advance this program as soon as possible. Is there a way that... Yes. I was going to say, is there a way that our listeners can support your effort financially? Um, can they donate money to your institute? So, again, as a researcher, I would like to uh, not to comment on that. You can definitely. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's, here's yeah. what I'm going to say. Anyone yeah. who is listening right now or listens to the podcast mm -hmm. later on, go to Miguel Institute on Google. Look for their donate right. page and support their work. The only way that you're going to have a faster response time is if this institute has the resources to be able to develop a vaccine. You just heard Itai speak about this a few minutes ago. He's going to need the facility. He's going to need the funds to be able to rapidly advance this if it meets government approval. And, and Itai, let's be clear. You're not working on this on a for-profit capacity at Migal. Migal is a nonprofit entity, correct? Right, right. So you're doing this for so, the betterment of humankind. What, it's it's not for a dollar. Um, Migal is a non-profit uh, research institute. It is basically here to advance and to you know to to help the the region, the Galilee region, the area we are placing in. Obviously, we are in the periphery of Israel. And um, and yes, yeah, so we have lower resources than more established institutes, but we are doing uh, really nice research here. Now, now there's Altogether. someone that I would also encourage. Deborah uh, Burks is the White House coordinator for uh, responding to the coronavirus, the COVID-19. And if she's listening to this, she better get in touch with Itai Block and his team over at the at the Miguel Institute in the, in the Galilee. So let, let's, let's zoom out for a second away from the coronavirus. Let's look at something a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more um, you know, uh, uplifting. 
How is it that every time there's some sort of global epidemic, some kind of global pandemic, we hear Israel has the solution? What makes your country and those who are living there, especially a lot of the, the brain power that's coming out of your institutes, like where you graduated from, the Weizmann Institute, so capable and so talented in being able to contribute to global uh, uh, benefit for, for health situations and for other technological solutions that many others are basically not developing? First of all, thank you for the compliments for Israel. Um, we are trying to at least here. Um, yeah. um, I think that one important uh, strength we have here is really we are uh, really good uh, communicators between us. So we share knowledge, we share ideas all around. And I think this process of like national brainstorming uh, might be of uh, assistance because anyone you speak with can contact you with the person you are looking for with the information you are missing uh, and that's really you know a fast way to get to either information or to uh, to knowledge that you are missing maybe that's uh, that's an advantage i think we have in israel uh, both because of the size and the mentality and also what do you find from your process of working with your colleagues on developing um, this vaccine. I mean, so you, you start hearing the news out of Wuhan, China. They're saying, uh-oh, right. we have this coronavirus, global pandemic. Are you waking up at 3 in the morning and saying, Eureka, I've got it. I'm going to replace one genome with another. I mean, how did you guys actually, you know, yeah. you, you say in Hebrew, the, the exclamation point came up. Uh, how, did right. you, how did you realize this? So the credit for that idea belongs to the head of this research group. Uh, we are several people, researchers coming from different disciplines. Um, the leader of this group is uh, Professor Jacob Pitkovsky. Um, he is really uh, world-renowned for his um, effort and contribu contribution for avian vaccines. But uh, he was the one who said, okay, we have good results on the avian vaccine. And there is a current a a corona the human coronavirus spreading around. Uh, let's let's try. Let's do our part. Let's try and uh, and adjust and and find a solution for the humankind. And um, and from that moment on, obviously, all of us were waiting for the uh, sequencing, for the publication of the of the genome of the human coronavirus, in order to see that we can really take the same segment that we are using from the avian one, but we can find it also on the human version. And this is basically the adjustment we had to do in order to adopt it to human. Uh, and and so that's, that's been how done? It evolved, and, yeah, and, and this is this, the part we are doing here, and we are now producing the, um, the vaccine in order to test it in animal model um, here at Miguel. Yeah. So how, how far away are we from an animal test? Um, I assume it is a matter of weeks. And again, the, the first uh, timeline that we laid out was about uh, three months. Um, and I think that in about two and a half months, we can be already after the animal test and uh, getting into the clinical trials. Yeah, well, let's remind our listeners, hope. science is not a, uh, or, or th this methodology is not a perfect science, so it might be two months, might be four months, but the bottom line here right. is that you guys are on the forefront of trying to find the first attempt at getting a vaccination for this horrific disease. 
um, we are trying. Right. We are really doing our, our best to, to go there. Yeah. We're, we're cheering you on. And, and again, yes. anyone who's listening, support the Begal Institute. Go on to Google. Look up their website. Itai, why don't you give us the, the URL, the uh, website address for, uh, for, for Migal? I think you can just look for migal.co.il. So that would be enough. Okay, migal.co.il. Itai Block, right. researcher of the coronavirus vaccine, part of Jacob Potofsky's team at the Migal. I probably just uh, messed up his last name, but that's okay. Yep. Part of Professor Potofsky's team at the uh, Migal Institute in Kiryat Shmoni in the Galil. Thank you for all you're doing for us and for humanity, Dr. Block. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And that ends our show this week. We have to make sure that we're all taking precautions to prevent the spread of this disease. We must wash our hands, use sanitizer, don't sneeze on anybody else, and make sure you stay three feet away from somebody in the deli line when you're getting your knishes on Friday afternoon. Uh, that's me, at least. Uh, Marilyn's here cracking up. Anybody, anyway, everybody have a good week. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Radio, WWDB, 860 AM, signing off.